Thank you. And thank you for coming. And I want to thank Derek and Bodell for having this program. Whether you all know it or not, they have put this church on the front line of the battle between Christ and Satan. Because the battle between Christ and Satan is a battle for your mind. And this weekend we are going to talk about strategies you can employ to effectively win that battle for your mind, to bring healing for your mind. Tonight we're going to talk about design for the mind, what happened when sin entered that damaged our mind, God's plan to heal and restore. Tomorrow morning our first talk is going to be the law of love and liberty and how this law applies to our life here and now, our relationships, the principle that actually governs the life in our life and the life in this universe. What happens when violations occur? The second talk in the morning is going to be fixed for failing families with specific uh, recommendations and suggestions and steps that you can take to help uh, with your family to bring healing to family problems. The third program in the morning is going to be demolishing Satan's strongholds. And we're going to talk about Satan's strategies to damage your mind, specific things that he is doing and, and trying to do in your mind that is damaging and how you can defeat those strategies. Tomorrow afternoon, if you are interested in neurobiology and how your thinking and thoughts actually change the neural circuitry of your brain, we're going to talk about the brain, the mind, and the body and the relationship amongst those three. And we're going to explore the disorder of depression and how those three affect uh, how, how your brain, body, or mind can result in depression if there is a problem in either one. And then our last talk tomorrow is going to be on the seven myths of forgiveness. The seven myths that people hold to that impair their ability to forgive and inability to forgive results in significant damage to the mind. And then we'll have question and answers. And I will be taking questions probably not to the services tomorrow morning, but tonight we can take some questions at the end if, we, if you like. And tomorrow afternoon we can take questions as well. This picture, as you notice in this picture... Jesus has his hands on the head of one of his disciples. And when I look at that picture, in my imagination, I imagine Jesus working in our minds to heal, to restore, to rewrite his character in our minds. And I want you this weekend to make this picture your visual image. That as we're working together, I want you to open your minds to the Holy Spirit and imagine that Jesus has his hands on your minds healing you this weekend. Revelation 7, 1 through 3 says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put the seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. The forehead is where we do our thinking, where we do our reasoning. God, at this very special time in history, this late stage in planet Earth, God is wanting to heal our minds, and he's sending the message to his agencies, hold, 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 until my servants' minds are healed, until they're settled into the truth about me, until they're regenerated and recreated to be like me in character. And right now, tonight, I believe this meeting is part of the process of God bringing people ready to meet him when he comes. What we're going to do tonight is an overview of God's original design for the mind, how sin damaged the mind, the difference between the converted mind and an unconverted mind, where self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence come from, and how we can affect them by our decisions. Uh, then we're going to look at specific problems happening in our mind and seven changes you can implement to balance your mind.
having it. Oh, there we go. Okay. When God, when God designed our mind, God is a God of order. He doesn't create things in chaos. And likewise with our minds, he created our minds with certain faculties to work in a certain order, in a certain organizational relationship. If you went and got a software system from Microsoft, you would expect that to have been intricately designed. So likewise, when God made us, he made our minds with a design. And the highest faculties we have in our mind are the faculties which separate us from the animals. And many Christians call these faculties our spiritual nature. When I use the term spiritual nature, I'm not talking about some ethereal, mystical, or vaporous entity that enters and leaves the body, as some Christians refer. I'm actually talking about those abilities, those qualities, those capabilities that God created us with that separate us from the animals. And the highest of these is our ability to reason, to weigh evidences, to draw conclusions. This is a picture of my cat, Scamper. Now, Scamper has a problem. You see, every morning when I get ready for work, I will dress with slacks like this or get ready for church on the weekend, and I will come out, and you can tell from this picture that he's a furball. And as he approaches me, he always wants to rub on my legs. And I will, I will try to reason with him, Scamper, please, buddy, will you give me a break today? Don't come rub on my legs, because, you know, if he rubs on my legs and I've got all this cat hair on me, Scamper can't reason. No matter how nice I talk to him, he can never figure out that this is a nuisance and I prefer he not do this. You and I have the capacity for reason, capacity for weighing evidences, drawing conclusions, thinking things through. This is the highest faculty God has given us. In the Bible, in Isaiah 118, it says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be made like wool. It's reasoning out the truth that helps open the mind to God's healing spirit to be regenerated and restored. In Romans, Paul says in Romans 14.5 that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. How can we be persuaded in our own mind if we don't reason, if we don't think? Reason is the highest faculty God has given us to make to, in our mind and is one of the governing faculties in our mind. But God knew that reason alone wasn't enough. We are finite. We are not infinite. There's always information beyond our current knowledge. And reason alone isn't sufficient for our discernment and our discrimination. So we made another faculty always working jointly, always hand in hand, always part of our discernment and decision making. And that other faculty is our conscience. Is our conscience. Now, when I say conscience, or when we talk about a conscience, some people refer to this as our spiritual eye. That part of the mind which is sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. And just like your physical eye, which can be 20-20 and see things very clearly, which can be farsighted, nearsighted, astigmatized, or blind, so your conscience can be very healthy and in tune with God's Spirit, or it can be out of tune and even blind. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's primarily talking about the conscience here. Certainly has an application to the physical eyes, but his primary concern with Christ is healing the heart, healing the mind. And the conscience is the, is the faculty of our mind that is sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul talks about those people who are, are wicked, sinful people, and in that process, they, they do something. They have their consciences seared as with a hot iron. And think about taking a hot iron and putting it on your physical eye and what that would do to your ability to see physically. A hot iron, sinful living, sears our conscience, which impairs our ability to see where God is leading. 
examples of the conscience. Elijah in the still small voice when he was in that cave and after the wind and the earthquake and the fire came and God was not in it, in that still voice of a small whisper. You see, when God communicates to us, he can communicate to us in the way I'm communicating to with auditory uh, voice where sound waves come in through the tympanic membrane into the brain and you hear it that way. We have examples of that when God used to meet with Moses and talk to Moses face to face. When God came and talked to Abraham and walked with him and spoke to Abraham, he was communicating through the auditory canal and the auditory neurons. But we also know that God can impress the conscience directly, speak in that still small voice that no one else can hear, just you can hear privately. This is what was happening, I believe, with Elijah. And how many of you have had that experience in your personal meditation, your personal quiet time with God, where you've experienced God speaking to you and no one else would hear that? That was God talking to you through the faculty of your conscience. And then the Holy Spirit, which convicts the world of of guilt or sin, as, as Jesus talked about, works through the conscience to bring that conviction. So what happens if somebody has reason in their, in their mind, the reason is working, but they don't have a conscience? No conscience is working. Remember, always to work together jointly. But we have a mind that has reasoning abilities, but they don't have a conscience. What would be the problem with that? Well, the problem would be these people end up being your recidivist criminals. These are the sociopaths. These are people who can plan, plot, and organize and take advantage of others, but they have no, no moral compass, no conviction of wrong. They don't experience guilt. And so reason without conscience can lead to very, very destructive pathways and habits. But what about conscience without reason? You have a mind, somebody's mind, they have a conscience, but they, ha- they aren't using their reasoning powers. Their reasoning powers, they've got turned off. They've sidelined reason. What would be the danger of somebody being conscientious without reason? Well, they could end up with the Branch Davidians burning to death in Waco. They could end up in Jonestown, Jim Jones, if anybody remembers that, and some of the young people from history uh, in Guyana where they all drank the cyanide, or trying to ride the Hale-Bopp Comet, which is more recent, where they all drank cyanide. You could end up strapping bombs on yourself and going into cafes and blowing yourself up in the name of your God. Or you could fly planes into buildings. I mean, if you think about these people, all of them I just described, aren't they very conscientious about their beliefs? But are they reasonable? Are they reasonable? Conscience without reason is dangerous. Let me tell you about Carlos. Carlos was a retired history professor from from a very conservative religious background. He was a Christian, and he belonged to a religious organization which believed in doing many healthy things, uh, living a healthy lifestyle, exercise. He was vegetarian. But one of his beliefs, he, he and his wife believed very firmly that taking medications was sinful. And not only was taking medications sinful, taking psychiatric medications were the most sinful, the medications that can affect your mind. Unfortunately, after he retired, he developed a a depression. And the depression progressed to a severe depression, what we call a psychotic depression, where he lost touch with reality. He became disorganized. He couldn't focus anymore. He and his wife recognized something was wrong, but what what should they do? They don't believe in, in medication. And so they searched the country until they found a sanitarium in which they had physicians who also believed that medications were sinful. And, and so they went to this, this company, this organization, and they treated him with hydrotherapy, massage, herbal treatments, and prayer. He continued to gr- regress. He continued to get worse until he was crawling around on the floor, incoherent, smearing feces on the wall. He stopped eating because he was too disorganized to eat. His weight dropped to critical levels. He got down to 85 pounds at 5 foot 10, 5 foot 11. 
At that point, the doctors at the sanitarium put a tube right into the abdominal wall, into the stomach, called a G-tube, and they began to feed him liquid concoctions to, to keep his, his physical body uh, going while he was no longer eating because he was too disorganized to eat. They continued this treatment for eight months. And after eight months, with no improvement, they brought him to my office. I'm still trying to figure out why. And I assessed him, and uh, he had a psychotic depression. And I spent a great deal of time with he and his wife, educating them on the science of depression, which you guys will learn a lot about tomorrow afternoon, about the genetic changes that occur in your brain when somebody is depressed, about the protein alterations that occur in the brain when somebody is depressed. I educated them on how the medicines work and the psychopharmacology behind it. I went through the history of, the, of depression in the 19th century when people tried uh, herbal treatments and, and natural remedies and how they failed to in- improve this particular disorder. But they told me, after a lengthy time of pleading with these people, they told me, In their mind, it would be better for him to die than to take medication. You see, these are people who are conscientious, but they're not reasonable. So they went back to the sanitarium where they continued the the same treatment without any improvement for another three months. At which time the son, who lived outside the country, found out what was going on finally, flew into the country, took dad away from mom to Chicago where he had a psychiatrist put him on medication. He... The father responded almost immediately, and within about six to eight weeks, he was back to himself and actually started teaching part-time uh, at a uh, university in the summer. Conscientiousness without reason results in unhealthy decision-making, just like reason without conscience. These two faculties together form our judgment. Form our judgment. So the rest of our weekend together, if you hear me saying, in your judgment... You know I'm talking about your reason and conscience. If I say in reason and conscience, you know I'm talking about your judgment. These two faculties together form our judgment. And they're always to be working together. And the healthier your reason and the healthier your conscience, the healthier your discrimination, the healthier your discernment, and the healthier your judgment. One other faculty that completes our spiritual nature, and that faculty is an inherent drive or desire to worship. Everyone worships something. It might not be God. It might be money. It might be the Florida Gators. Uh, it might be the American Idol. Uh, it, it might be the scientific method. Power. Everyone worships something. It is a looking outside of yourself for a frame of orientation that gives life direction, meaning, and purpose. I'm really having trouble with this uh, controller. I don't know if there's another one in the house or not. Um, Carl Jasper said, that which you hold to, upon which you stake your existence, that is truly your God. Richard Creel, in uh, his book, said, a person's deity is that which actually dominates that person's life, giving it unity, direction, and inspiration, whether the person realizes it or not. Can we advance to the next one, please? The question is not whether we worship, rather the question is what are we worshiping? Why does God say, thou shalt have no other gods before me? Some people allege God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me because he's sovereign, because he's powerful, because he's creator, and it's his right to command our worship. Now, it is true that he's sovereign, he's powerful, he's creator. It's all those things are true, but that's not why he says worship me. 
The reason he says worship me is because of the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We actually become like that which we admire, that which we esteem, that which we value. In psychiatry, this is called modeling. We assimilate into our own character, whatever it is we look up to, value, esteem, and worship. This is known as the law of worship. This is a picture of Heket. Heket is the ancient frog god of Egypt. The ancient frog god of Egypt. You, you remember the frog god there was dealt with in the, one of the plagues, uh, the plagues in Egypt at Moses' time. Imagine your family tonight gathering around the little idol of Heket and beginning to pray, Dear Lord, dear Lord Heket, bless, bless our family and, and help me to grow up to be like you. Is there a problem with that? We don't have to go to ancient Egypt to see this. This is a picture out of a a temple currently being used in India. And this is a a sect of Hinduism, and they believe in um, reincarnation. And you'll notice at the bottom of this picture, these are rats. These are pictures from inside the temple. And you notice they worship the rat at this temple. Now, this is a bowl of milk and honey that are put out for the rats to drink in. Worshippers will come in, and they will kneel down at this bowl. They will pour the milk and honey over their own heads, and they will drink out of the bowl with the rats. Do you notice, do you notice this man has no shoes? Shoes are not allowed or permitted inside this temple because rats are holy. If you step on a rat and kill a rat, you must pay the temple the weight of that rat in gold. Now you see these young boys here praying to the rats. Look at the rats all over. See? Think about it. Beings created in the image of God with dignity, nobility of character, have as their highest goal to come back as a rat. You see, there is nothing on this planet that we can worship and actually grow. We are the highest created beings on this planet. There is nothing we can worship on this planet that will cause us to grow, to develop, to experience the pinnacles that God wants us to grow into. But when we worship the infinite God, our growth, our advancement continues through all eternity. We're always continuing to advance, to grow, one step after another through all eternity. That's why God says to worship Him, because He wants us to never stop advancing in our development and our experience. You don't have to look at uh, religious circles to see this law of worship, however. You can see this in science as well. This was a study done by Centerwall, published in the Journal of American Medical Association in 1991, uh, 92. This was the seminal study which looked at violence related to television. And he took three countries, the United States... Canada and South Africa. The reason he took these three countries, the United States and Canada uh, put television into their society in 1945. South Africa did not allow television into their society until 1974. And so he looked at, tel- he looked at violence, and the, the mar- demarcator of violence he looked at in society was murder rates, homicide rates, black and white measure of violence. And he looked at murder rates in the United States and Canada because Canada has very strict gun control laws and he didn't want any increase in, in murder rates to be attributed to easy access to guns in the United States. And in South Africa, he looked at white-on-white only murder to take away any of the apartheid issues that were going on at that time. And this is what he discovered. From 1945 to 1974, in the United States, murder rates increased 93%. In Canada, 92%. During the same time in South Africa, murder rates dropped 7%. Do 
Now, the kicker, he looked at South Africa after television came in between 1974 and 1987, and murder rates jumped 130%. Now, a lot of people think that this has only to do with content. You know, you, you let kids watch violent content, and violent content will cause violent responses. Violent content is simply a magnifier. Think about the content that was on television between 1945 and 1974. Howdy Doody, Leave it to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet, okay, Andy Griffith. Okay. Everything that was on would, would get G ratings, family-friendly. And it still saw the rise in murder rates. You come tomorrow afternoon to our talk on depression, I will explain to you what's happening neurobiologically in the brain. Watching television during the first eight years of life changes brain wiring. And that's why this is going on. The content magnifies it. You notice the content from 1974 to 1987 was worse than the content from, from 45 to 74. You get the same effect, but you get a bigger effect now, 130% increase instead of a 90% increase because the content is worse. Tomorrow afternoon, I'll explain to you neurobiologically why, but what's happening here is the law of worship. By beholding, we are becoming changed. Not just changed in our mind, not just changed in what we think, not just changed in what we value, but our brain is actually rewiring itself as well. The brain is changing during this process, and I will teach you that tomorrow. Thus, the song that you sang tonight in Philippians 4.8, the whole point of that, that song, but the point of the passage by Paul, it's based on the law of worship. Focus on all those good things. Think about all those good things. Assimilate all those good things, and your character, your mind, will change and transform. It's part of the law of worship. It is through healthy worship that our reason is ennobled and our conscience is cleansed. These highest faculties that, that is our judgment. So if we have healthy forms of worship, over the course of time, our judgment gets better. We get greater discernment, greater ability to think and to reason. If we have unhealthy forms of worship, the reason and conscience are damaged. We lose our ability to reason and think clearly. Our judgment is impaired. And tomorrow we're going to talk at the third program in the morning, Demolishing Satan's Strongholds, some specific things that can happen in the process of worship that damages the mind. Not all worship is equally healthy. I was at a conference in Harvard University in Boston a few years back called Spirituality and Medicine. And at this conference, they had people from all different religious backgrounds. And on the platform, the various speakers, they had, they had a Catholic speaker, they had a Protestant minister, they had a Jewish rabbi, they had a, an imam from Islam, they had a Church of Scientology, they had Christian science. They had all these different people taking turns speaking about their spirituality and, and how it impacts uh, their, their uh, parishioners and so forth. There's about 1,300 members in attendance at this conference, and about a third of the way, two-thirds of the way through the conference, a lady gets up to the microphone and says, I want you all to know that I am here representing the Wiccans, the white witchcraft, those of us who practice white witchcraft. We base our, our religious faith on the ancient pagan religions of Europe, of ancient Europe. And that was, only the, that was the first time and only one of two times that the entire place broke into applause applauding her and her Wiccan ways. And I had to get up to the microphone, and I got up to the microphone, and I said, while, while we absolutely want to support the freedom for anyone to believe as their conscience leads them to believe, we wouldn't want to take their freedom away, would we? No, we support her freedom to believe that. We should not confuse her freedom or people's freedom to believe whatever they want to believe with the idea that all beliefs are equally healthy. They're not. See, people are, are free to believe that smoking helps their breathing. 
I actually have patients. I actually do. I have patients that will tell me that their cigarette smoke helps them breathe better. They're free to believe that, aren't they? But that belief is not as healthy as believing cigarettes damage the lungs. You see, so when we talk about spirituality, not all religious practices, not all spiritual beliefs are equally as healthy for the mind. And I'm going to give you some specifics tomorrow that you can kind of use as demarcators and identifiers to help you have a healthier religious and spiritual experience that your mind can grow and heal. So the high, these are the faculties of our mind. Now, once reason and conscience, once your good judgment has evaluated facts, evidences, circumstances, and come to a conclusion, the next faculty of your mind is to go into action. And that faculty is your will. This is the part of your mind that chooses. Some will call this the executor, the CEO, the governor of your mind. But it's the faculty that actually chooses. When you say, I choose to do this, you're talking about your, your will, exercising your will. Now, the will was designed to follow the direction of reason and conscience. Reason and conscience, your judgment, evaluating facts, circumstance, coming to a conclusion. Then the will is to go into action and choose to apply what it is your good judgment has concluded is best. That's how it's designed to work, but it doesn't always work that way. Consider a smoker. Smoker can reason through all the reasons why smoking is no good. Heart disease, lung disease, waste money, smells bad, bad for the kids. Their conscience can convict them of the need to quit. They can even come to the point they tell themselves and their, and their family and their friends, man, this is the worst, filthiest habit. I wish I'd have never started this thing. But if they never actually engage their will and choose to set the cigarettes down, they keep smoking. You see, our judgment can conclude a course of action as best but our will can still choose to do something else. And you will learn this weekend that when that happens, our minds, our characters get damaged. Whenever we choose to go against our good judgment, our minds, our characters get damaged. And you're going to discover why we choose to do that this weekend as well. The next faculty of the mind is simply termed our thoughts, and it does include all the mundane things you think, like, you know, don't forget to pick up the kids after school, and I've got to go and get some groceries on my way home. Those types of thoughts are included, but there are special types of thoughts included here. Our beliefs, our values, our morals, and our imagination. Some people stop me and go, you know, Dr. Jennings, I've been to programs where our beliefs and values and morals, they're at the top uh, because they guide us. They they give us direction. Shouldn't they be at the top of our, our, our structure here? Well, think through with me. Can you, with your reasoning power, reason through your beliefs and with new facts, with new evidence, can you change your beliefs? Can a person who believes in Buddha have a missionary come teach them about Christ and and change that belief? Sure. You can reason through and change your beliefs. How about with your morals and your values? Can you do that as well? Of course. Judgment can modify or change these things. What about with your will? Can you choose to do things that actually go against what you believe is right? Yes, we do it all the time. So you can see these are subordinate to the higher faculties which shape and govern and choose the direction and the course of our life. And then the way God designed our mind, there's only one faculty left. This faculty is always to be part of our experience, always to be part of of how our mind is working, but it is never to be the engine that is in charge or directs or leads. It's, It's the caboose, not the director. Anybody know what part? Absolutely right. Some bright people here. Feelings. These are our feelings. That's exactly right. Um, Belief simply, uh, this slide is talking about what we believe changes us psychologically, uh, spiritually, and physically. Absolutely. And I'm going to give you some examples about the power of our beliefs. We're we're backing up just a little bit and talking about the beliefs and their power. Uh, Anybody heard of a placebo and how important beliefs are? 
Placebos are used sometimes with patients who have pain, and you give somebody a placebo, which is a sugar pill or an injection of, of salt water, and if they think it's a pain medicine, sometimes people get relief of their pain. And when that happens in the past, people would go, see, they're not really having pain, it's all in their head, right? What we've actually discovered now, though, when you give somebody a placebo and they believe they're getting a pain medicine, the brain neurons will release chemicals called endorphins and enkephalins, which are brain-produced opiates, like morphine, produced by the brain itself, which actually results in hitting those pain receptors, reducing the sensation of pain. It's actually a physiologic change happening, so they do get less pain if they believe they're getting a pain medicine. However, if you give them that and they know that it's a placebo the brain won't release the endorphin and encephalin and they get no pain benefit. They actually have to believe it in order to get the benefit. Uh, there was a report done actually last month, some of you may have read about it in the news, about hotel workers and weight. They, somebody observed that uh, these maids working in these New York hotels climb multiple flights of stairs every day and walk 10 to 15 miles every day on their job, a lot of exercise. They went to the maids and asked them the question, do you exercise? They said, no, we don't exercise. So somebody pointed out to them, they did the study, they pointed out, do you realize you're walking 10 to 15 miles a day and you're climbing all these stairs every day? You're doing a lot of exercise. That's all they did. And the maid started losing weight. <laughs> Soon as they believed they were exercising, something started changing and they started, they were do, they didn't, they didn't walk anymore, didn't climb any more stairs, but something changed with a change in belief. There was a study done of women who were pregnant and having intractable nausea during pregnancy, the first trimester of pregnancy. And in this study, the doctor uh, put a tube down into the stomach where he could actually measure the contractions happening in the stomach during the waves of nausea. And then he gave them a medicine he told them would cure their nausea. In fact, he gave them small doses of syrup of epicac. Syrup of epicac is a medicine used to induce vomiting. When somebody has uh, taken something they shouldn't have and you want to make them vomit, you give them syrup of epicac and it makes them vomit. That's the medicine he actually gave them. In every case, the nausea went away and the stomach contractions decreased as measured by the bulb. Lies believed, and we're going to talk about this a little more today and tomorrow, lies believed have incredible power to change and transform and damage and destroy our lives. I'll give you just a quick example. Those of you who are parents, if somebody came in here, somebody you know, like your own spouse or your, or your parent, comes in here and says to you, lies to you, and tells you one of your children just got killed, would that affect your life? Think of the power, and, and, and of course there's no truth in it. Nothing's actually really happened. But if you believe that lie does it have impact on you? Yes. Lies are powerful. We're going to talk exactly how powerful they are in multiple talks this weekend. So our beliefs are critically important as a, as a type of thought. And one of the things I'm going to teach you this weekend is how to police your beliefs to, uh, to eradicate unhealthy beliefs, lies, distortions. And the most destructive lies that we believe of all are the lies about God himself. This entire process of sin started when lies were told about God. And I'm going to point multiple ones out, and I think some of you may be shocked because I'm going to challenge some of you with some ideas that you're holding true right now. But I will give you evidence, hopefully, uh, because I don't want you to believe anything because I said it. I only want you to believe because you have come to reason, weigh the evidence, come to your own conclusion, and are fully persuaded in your own minds. Then it's okay to 
form the belief. But don't believe because I say so. I'm just here sharing information for you to think about. Okay, the imagination. What about the imagination? Another type of thoughts. Another type of thoughts. This is the ability to fantasize, the ability to creatively think, the ability to, to do guided imagery, the ability to daydream. Uh, we can use this in constructive ways or, or unhealthy ways. Constructively, when you're praying or meditating, have you ever imagined yourself walking by the river of life with Christ and talking with him or before God's throne and having a conversation, putting yourself in, in those types of meditation sessions, using your imagination in healthy ways? Uh, we can also use our imagination in unhealthy ways. And I'll show you that problems with the imagination in just a moment. So that, that final faculty that we just talked about, and some of you have already identified, is our feelings. Feelings are the caboose on the, on the train. Now, it does include the way God designed it. It includes most of our feelings, but there are a particular type of feeling that is not included in God's original design. And that feeling is fear. You see, as soon as Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Fear was not part of our original design. It's part of the infection that is killing us, and I will show you that. And selfish feelings, feelings of self-centeredness are not part of our original design. That's part of the infection. I'll show you how that got there in just a few minutes. But our other feelings are part of our original design. Now, I pointed out two special types of feelings, desire for relationships and our affections. In Genesis chapter 2.18, God speaking, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, I'm going to take a little side and explain this text because this text has been really tragically misunderstood through many, many millennia of our existence. A lot of people think that this means is God looked down and said, Adam needs somebody to carry the pail and the bucket and do his chores and wash his clothes and take care of him and be his helper. Follow his instructions. Adam needs a helper. No. Whose image was Adam made in? And the essential character of God, his character feature that the Bible says God is love. Can love be experienced in isolation? No. You see, Eve was not created to help Adam do chores. Eve was created for Adam to serve, for Adam to minister to, for Adam to give of himself to, to build her up, to minister to her, to make her life better so that he could enter into the fullness of godly love. That's what her purpose was. He needed a helper so he could know what the Godhead experiences in their ministry and love for each other. And as she received the love from Adam, she would let that love flow back to Adam, and thus we have the circle of love fulfilled in the creation of the human, the human being. That's what this was really designed to be, drive for relationships. God, God has designed us this way. So if you find that you have a desire in your heart to, to be connected with somebody in that special way, that desire is not evil, that desire is not bad, that is a God-given desire. Some people will stop me and say, wait a minute though, you said that our spiritual nature are those faculties that make us in God's image. And you just got done telling us that, that this desire for relationships, this ability to love is a godly thing made in God's image. Shouldn't our desire for relationships be up in our spiritual nature rather than down in our feelings? Well, Paul says in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, what's God's nature? Love have been seen being understood from what he has made so that men are without excuse. In other words, God's character of love is seen in nature. Desire for relationships are not unique to the human being. Can animals love you? Can they have relationships with each other? Yes. Can they reason? No. <laughs> Do they have a conscience? No. 
No. Can they make moral decisions? No. Okay? So the desire for relationships does not separate or distinguish us from the animals. They have that same desire to love and to connect. But it does... uh, and, and so, therefore, it's not included in our spiritual nature. And in fact, if you think this through with me, if it wasn't for your reason and your conscience deciding where and with whom you engage in relationships, if it wasn't for your will choosing where and with whom you engage in relationships, if it wasn't for these faculties, we, be, we would be no better than the animals driven around by passion and lust. This desire for relationship is to maintained under the governance of our good judgment and our power of choice. So that you reason out when you have that desire, when you long to have somebody special to love, you don't let that desire lead you to jump from person to person to person just to be gratified in a moment. You maintain that desire under your good judgment, evaluating the qualifications and character traits of the person and make an intelligent choice whether to move forward in relationship or not move forward in relationship. And then the other special type of feeling I I noted here is our affections. And our affections are known as our heartstrings are our feelings of attachment. Our heartstrings are our feelings of attachment. I want you to imagine that you've been saving your money for many, many months to buy your dream car. And you finally have enough money to buy your car. And you go buy your car and you're so excited you want to show all your friends. So you, so you go to their place of employment where they're working and, and you run in to get them. And when you come out, there's another car just like yours in the parking lot, but it's not yours. And that other one has a big dent in the side. You might go, let me show my wheels. But if you come out and your new car has a big dent in the side, does it feel different? Um, uh, See, that's an example of our affections. You already have an emotional attachment to this thing. Okay? All right? And when the Bible talks about guarding your heart, it's talking about be careful what you let your feelings become attached to. When it talks about circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, it's talking about cutting away these types of emotional attachments to unhealthy things and unhealthy people. Okay? Unhealthy things, cutting these attachments and establishing them to healthy things and healthy people and ultimately to God himself. Christ himself said, those that, uh, that prefer family members to me aren't fit, right? Those of us who allow our attachments, our feelings of affection to continue to lead us in making decisions that our own judgment knows is not healthy for us because we don't want to disappoint somebody else. We don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings. We care too much about that other person than to actually do what we know is the right, healthy, and reasonable thing. What we damage our minds. We damage our characters. Our reason gets, gets warped. Our consciences get seared. And so we have to cut those emotional ties to unhealthy things and unhealthy people. And so the way God designed the mind, God designed the mind for him to be the source of light, for him to be the source of truth, for him to be the source of our focus, for us to be looking outward to him to ever be growing, advancing, and developing in godly ways as our reason is enlightened, our conscience is cleared, forming healthy opinions, judgments, conclusions about things, healthy beliefs that our will is choosing in the formation of beliefs, values, and the right use of our imagination, the engagement in healthy relationships and attachments. God designed it to work this way. Do you ever notice it doesn't always work this way? What happened? What went wrong? What was the problem? What happened when Adam sinned? And I want to walk you through. This is where those lies believed come in. I want you to imagine everyone in this room who is married is in a healthy, loving, nurturing, Christ-like marriage. 
And I want you to imagine that somebody close to you, your own son or daughter, your own brother or sister, even one of your parents, somebody close to you that you trust comes to you and tells you a lie. Of course, you don't know it's a lie. They tell you a lie that your spouse is having an affair. And they bring digitally enhanced photographs that they've made on their own computer of your spouse with another person. And they tell you this lie that your spouse is cheating, even though they're not. And they tell you with tears. They tell you with a convincing demeanor. If you believe the lie that your spouse is having an affair, does something inside of you change? Do you still trust your spouse if you believe the lie? Is it, and this is the first step in the process of what damaged our mind. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Do you see that? You believe a lie, love and trust is broken. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. You see, uh, I believe lies about God that he's not my friend. He's not, out, he's not out to protect me. He's trying to keep me down. Uh, I believe the serpent's lies in the garden. Therefore, I no longer trust you, God. And since I don't trust you, I'm actually afraid of you. You're going to hurt me. If you don't trust your spouse, your spouse is having an affair, you're now fearful that they're going to take advantage. They're going to exploit. They don't have your back anymore. Fear comes up immediately when trust is broken. So broken love and trust results in fear. And since I don't trust you to look out for me, well, then I've got to look out for me, don't I? Fear and selfishness, the infection, immediately consequence from believing lies about God. In the world today, this fear and selfish infection is known as survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest, pursuing what's best for self at the expense of others. It is just the opposite of God's principle of love. So lies believed result in broken love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in destructive acts, what we call sins, the bad behaviors. Do you notice that, that the bad acts are the third step down in the process? You see, the bad acts aren't the primary problem. The bad acts are the symptoms of the heart-mind problem. And the bad acts result in damage to mind, character, body, this is a terminal condition. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. James chapter 1, verse 15. The falling dominoes of destruction, lies believed, break the circle of love and trust, resulting in fear and selfishness, which leads to bad acts which damage our mind, character, and body, and we ultimately die. Save divine intervention. This is the mind infected with selfishness. All the faculties of the mind are warped. All the faculties of the mind are bent towards self-seeking. The Bible tells us that this is our inheritance. David says in Psalms 51, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We are born and conceived with self-centeredness. Have you ever noticed that when babies come into the world, they are not interested in making sure everyone else is rested and fed? Are they? But they are interested in themselves. Now, that's the wiring we have. We are born wired to look self-centered. The psychiatrists recognize this, and they call it egocentrism. Ego, the self, centrism, centered, self-centered. This is how we are born and wired. 
The Bible tells us that there are three main avenues. This, this predisposition will, will demonstrate itself in our lives. Three main avenues. It tells us they are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in the old King James English. We would simply call that sensualism, materialism, and egotism. Sensualism or all the the pleasures of the, of the senses. This would be alcohol, drugs, sexual pleasures, all the pleasures of the senses. And some people are biologically predisposed to be more vulnerable to that than others. And so when you read studies where they've found genetic vulnerabilities to alcohol addiction, and people go, wow, this must be, a, this must be you know, kind of a normal thing because we found genes that relate to it. This is not a revelation. The Bible told us this years ago. Did it not? We are biologically born self-centered and we have three main avenues through which it expresses itself. Some people are, have, have bigger, bigger struggles with sensual issues than others. Some people have struggle, struggles with pride and self-centeredness. Some people have struggles with materialism, getting greed and so forth. And, th- and Paul says in Romans 8, 5, those who live according to the sinful nature, notice this, have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So the unconverted mind, you still have God trying to shine light in, God trying to demonstrate truth, God pouring out his love, God trying to reach that person, but the mind is set back on the self-centered nature, gratifying self, pursuing self, self self-exaltation, self-gratification, doing what makes self feel good, protect self, advance self, exalt self. That's the carnal mind. That's the unconverted mind. The converted mind is the person who has come to trust God and in trust opens the heart to God and the Holy Spirit comes in and begins ennobling the reason, cleansing the conscience. We have healthy worship as we come to know God better. We direct the will to form healthier beliefs, values, morals, and we begin making choices that are designed to do what the Spirit would do, just like you read tonight, that self-sacrificing, that loving, giving aspect of our lives. The converted mind still has the temptation of the carnal nature, that fear, that selfishness still tempts us. But the converted man combats those temptations with trust and love. Trust in God, choosing to do what's right because we understand it's right, even though it doesn't feel good in the moment to do it. This is the the dynamic. This is the converted person. Of course, one day looking forward to the time we don't have those vulnerabilities anymore, and we will never be tempted again with our own feelings. So an imbalanced mind. Let's look at what's going on in our minds. Let's look at some specifics. We've already talked about a person when they have unhealthy reason or an unhealthy conscience. We discussed that already, what happens to the mind. We've discussed unhealthy worship, and we explored how the mind and characters transformed with unhealthy worship. We're going to talk now about what happens when we have problems with feelings, what happens when we have problems with beliefs, what happens when we have problems with imagination, and what happens when we have problems with the mind actually out of balance. And we'll look at all those real quick. This is a simplified overview that it's very effective to use for people who have problems with feelings governing their life people who are are led by feelings. And you can simply just simplify this down to judgment, power of choice, and feelings. Judgment, power of choice, and feelings. You can remember that. You can carry that with you in your head. We have to reason things out. We have uh, judgment. What's your good judgment? What's it say about this circumstance? Uh, What do I feel? Are my feelings pulling me in a different direction? And then you have that power of choice. Let's look at some examples. Imagine you're a new mom, and you just come home from the hospital with your first baby. And your husband has had to go out on a business trip, so he's not there. You get up early in the morning. You're working around the house. You're fixing up the nursery. Uh, before you know it, the day has slipped by. It's 1130 at night. You crawl into bed completely exhausted. 
At 2 o'clock in the morning, your baby begins to cry wet and hungry. Do you feel like getting up out of bed? No. But your good judgment, your reasoning conscience, as soon as you're aroused, kick in and remind you of your responsibilities and your duties, and you literally will yourself up out of bed, and you go and change and take care of your baby. Isn't that how it works? And then having done so, you fed and you changed the baby, you go back to sleep. When you get up the next morning, how do you experience yourself? Greater peace, sense of well-being, sense of confidence. Hey, I'm doing a pretty good, good job, good mom. Let's flip the thing upside down. Let's put feelings in charge. Two o'clock in the morning, baby begins to cry wet and hungry. You don't feel like getting up, so you don't. Your feelings will grab a hold of your thoughts and begin to say, look, if I'm going to be a good mom, I've got to get my rest. If I'm up, up and down all night, I'll be cranky tomorrow. I'll be irritable. I'll make mistakes. And besides that, if my husband, whose body didn't get all morphed out of shape in order to bring this child in the world in the first place, can sleep in a good hotel room tonight, at least I should be able to get some good sleep here at home. And so you put a pillow over your head and you go back to sleep. And you let your baby lay there wet and hungry all night. Now when you get up the next morning, how do you experience yourself? Sense of well-being? Self-esteem up or down? Self-worth up or down? Self-confidence up or down? Down. Yeah. What about the 16-year-old cheerleader who is a cheerleader on a high school football team? She thinks the captain of the team is so cute, and she just wishes that he would ask her out on a date. And sure enough, he finally does. And on their very first date, he tries to violate her virtue. What does her good judgment say? Yes or no? No. But maybe she has feelings in the matter that that go something like this. Well, I don't want him to be mad at me. I want him to like me. I want him to ask me out again. And right in the middle is her will. She has to make a choice. Now, if she chooses alone with him to look him in the eye and say no at that moment, while she's telling him no, does that feel good? There's that awkward and tense Awkward and tense. But let's say she goes with her good judgment. She tells him no. The next day, the next week, as time goes forward, what happens to her self-esteem, self-worth, and self-confidence? It's up. What happens if instead she lets her feelings take charge and she just lays there and let him have his way? Then what happens to esteem, worth, and confidence? Down. See, I'm going to tell you a secret. Every time in any situation, if you allow your feelings to overrule the conclusion of your judgment and you choose to follow your feelings instead of your judgment, you damage yourself. Self-esteem, self-worth, and self-confidence will fall. And as it falls, we have more insecurity and more fear with ourselves. Uh, we, we don't feel as good about ourselves, so we long for external approval instead. See, when we're insecure, when our self-esteem is low, we want somebody to affirm us. We want somebody to like us. We want somebody to tell us we're okay. This offsets that internal doubt that we have. And so we're more vulnerable to rejection, and we're more likely to go along the next time. It's a spiral down. The only way out of this, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These first two examples... You might say, well, well, let's think about this. Those two examples are, are examples of acts of immorality. It's immoral to not care for your child. It's immoral to have premarital sex. What happens if you let feelings overrule your judgment on an issue that's not a moral issue? Will that be okay? Well, the first two I made up. This is a real story. I had a patient come to see me who was a pastor's wife. She and her husband had been in the ministry for 28 years. She had several adult children that were doing well. Most things in her life were successful, no real major stresses. But she had a lifelong history of low self-esteem, insecurity, feelings of worthlessness, and depression. And she didn't know why. And then she told me a story that revealed her problem. She told me she was taking a college class at the local university. 
And that as the semester progressed, she got her final exam schedule, and her final exams were scheduled for a Thursday morning. Well, immediately when she went to her calendar, and she marked off in her calendar Wednesday night for her final exam preparation. Tuesday of exam week, two days before exam, that afternoon, the church organist calls and says, I've had a sudden conflict come up in my schedule. I can't play for midweek worship tomorrow. Will you play for me? She thought in her judgment, no way, I've already blocked that off. I've got to be a good steward. I've been studying all semester. I've got to make good grades. I need to get that final exam score. No, I can't do it. But she told me. But she was flooded with these feelings of fear and insecurity where she said, oh, I didn't want her to be mad at me. I didn't want her to think I didn't care about her. I didn't want people to think that I don't support my husband's ministry. I didn't want people to be afraid that they couldn't call me. And based on all these feelings of fear and insecurity, she changed her plans and went and played the organ at church. Now, is there anything immoral about playing the organ at church? No. What do you think happened? Self-esteem, self-worth, and self-confidence, up or down? It all fell. Why? Because in her judgment, she was supposed to be studying. And see, what is self-esteem? It is your estimation of yourself. How do you estimate or how do you judge yourself? And so when you violate your own judgment, when you make choices that go against your own judgment, you, you haven't erased your judgment. It's still in there, and it's going like this. I'm ashamed of you. You're a coward. You have no backbone. You're a weakling. You disgust me. Your own judgment inside, you know what I'm talking about. We've all had it. When you violated your own judgment, that little voice back there is simply saying, you're a loser. And the only way to find peace is to begin putting the mind back in balance. We were choosing to do that which judgment directs. Now, some people have a great difficulty with this. We'll talk some examples tomorrow in our, our neurobiology talk tomorrow afternoon about what's happening in the physiology of the brain that makes these feelings so strong and how we can help with that. But I want you to, to use a metaphor. People who let feelings lead their life are like bobbers, fishing bobbers, on the ocean. The ocean, which is the waves of our emotions. They're up, they're down. And that bobber on the ocean, when their feelings are up, they're up. When their feelings are down, they're down. When their feelings are this way, they're this way. And their life is a constant chaos of no real direction, just, just complete unpredictability, waiting for the next mood to kind of float them along in a new direction. But people who put their judgment in charge and choose with their will to follow their judgment in spite of feelings, they're like ships on the ocean. They still have all the feelings to deal with, but they can chart their course in healthy directions in spite of the feelings. Look at Christ in Gethsemane. Did Christ have powerful feelings in Gethsemane to deal with? Yes, but he never let them dictate the course. He dictated his course by healthy choosing of his will despite the powerful feelings. This is how we're to live our lives. So, where do they originate? Self-esteem, self-worth, and self-confidence? In early life experiences and in the process of how our brain uh, faculties actually function. The perpetual functioning of feelings overruling judgment will lower these. Learning to put the mind in balance, they will automatically rise without you thinking about it. You don't have to go to the mirror and talk nice things to yourself in the mirror. You know, you're really a good-looking guy. You don't have to do that, okay? Self-esteem will automatically rise as the uh, mind is put back in balance. And we definitely can affect them by our decision-making uh, impacting these, these experiences that we have. So what about problems with the imagination, addictions in imagination? I have many patients that have various addictions that come to see me. We use the addiction, a simple one, of uh, nicotine addiction, tobacco addiction, which is actually quite a, quite a very powerful addiction. A person with, m- most people with addictions, 
do not have addictions because they have an information deficit. In other words, a person who smokes doesn't smoke because they don't know cigarettes are bad, at least in our society. They're not doing it thinking that somehow this is a health benefit. They've read the warnings. They've seen the studies. They've heard everybody. They know their cancer risk, heart disease risk, stroke risk. All these things are worse when they smoke. It's not an information problem that they have. The problem that they have is their affections, their feelings are tied to the substance. And so what we have to do is we have to help them use their imagination to help them, not hurt them. What do I mean? Well, let's say you've finally convinced somebody with, a, with pressure, with weight of evidence that they say, okay, I'm going to quit, and they lay their cigarettes down. Sometime in the next 24 to 48 hours, they're going to start getting cravings. And if they're not careful, they're going to go like this. Oh, I could smell one right about now. Ooh, one would taste so good right about now. And they start, in their imagination, unwrapping the cigarette thing, lighting the cigarette up, and they start going through the process of what that's like, imagining smoking. Will that help them quit or hurt them? Hurt them. Make it much worse, absolutely. So what I teach them to do is when the cravings come, I want, tell them to, I want you to imagine reaching in your pocket, pulling out a flip-top box of cigarettes, and flip it open, and it's crawling full of maggots. See? Suddenly a desire changes, doesn't it? Yeah. Or, or you flip it open... And cockroaches come running out all over your hand. You see? And use your imagination. See, we have the power. Every one of you, as I tell you this, you have your imagination. You have a visual image that comes up. You have the power with your judgment and with your will to choose what you imagine. And we can direct our minds to choose this. And so what they do when, when that craving comes, using their imagination in this way, they're actually changing the way they feel about the addiction. You see, whoever, whoever you know in your life, in your world circle has an addiction, whatever they're addicted to, they feel good about that addiction. When they think about that substance, they get a warm, fuzzy, yeah, that'd be nice. Which is just the opposite feeling that you get if you have a nice, warm bowl of maggots crawling in a bowl, right? What kind of feeling do you get with that? Ugh, disgust, see? And so one of the things we have to do to help people get over addictions is we can help them use their imagination to supplant the feeling of, of a warm fuzzy with a feeling of disgust and revulsion. And that helps them through the process of breaking addiction, cutting, cutting those affections, cutting those ties. PET scans in the imagination, they've actually done studies on people uh, where they put them in a PET scanner and they have them a PET scanner, by the way, is a scanner that actually takes real-time images showing which brain circuits, which neurons are firing when you're thinking about certain things, when you're doing certain activities. So they put them in a PET scanner, and they have them play a, a piano, a, a keyboard. And while they're playing a certain piano piece, they're watching which neurons of the brain are firing co- uh, corresponding with the action activities they're doing. And then they take away the, the keyboard, and they tell them to imagine playing the piano piece, but don't move any fingers. So they lay there not moving any muscles at all, imagining playing the same piece and the exact same neural circuits fire in the brain. Thus, what Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, you say if you hate, you say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. You say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. What he is telling us is if we're doing it in our imagination, we're still firing the same neural circuits, transformation of heart, transformation of mind, transformation of character is not occurring. And I will teach you tomorrow in the, in the neurophysiology section, uh, actually some of the uh, gene expression changes, protein production changes that occur when we think and when we imagine things and why these circuits don't change and why we have to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. 
As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. This is absolutely true. If you think it, if you choose it with your heart, it actually has an impact on the wiring of your brain and the development of your character. Problems uh, with beliefs? Inappropriate guilt. Now, I have an entire lecture on guilt that we're not going to do this weekend, so I'm not going to do an entire hour-long lecture on guilt tonight. But there are two types of guilt. There's appropriate guilt and there's inappropriate guilt. Uh, Inappropriate guilt always occurs... By the way, appropriate guilt occurs when you've done something wrong. And I will mention that in one of our talks tomorrow and and deal with resolution of appropriate guilt tomorrow. But inappropriate guilt occurs always when in some way you're believing a lie. You're believing a falsehood in some way. I had a patient who had a a two-year-old son, and the two-year-old son got sick started crying, have a fever, took it to the pediatrician's office in the morning. Pediatrician diagnosed ear infection, middle ear infection, very common with two-year-olds, gave him an antibiotic and sent him home. The child continued to get worse throughout the day. And by mid-afternoon, the the fever had gotten much higher, 105, 106, despite the antibiotics. So the, the father took the child to an emergency room. Emergency room doc examined the child said, yep, middle ear infection, those are the right antibiotics, uh, gave some child, children's Tylenol to help with the fever and sent him home. The child continued to worsen through the night and began to seize and took the child back, the father took the child back to the emergency room that same night, but it was too late. They diagnosed meningitis at that time and the child died that night. This patient came to see me, guilt-ridden. It was my fault. God gave me that child. It was my responsibility. I knew the child was like, I knew something was wrong. I should have done something guilt-ridden. Did the, did the father do anything wrong? No. See, this was inappropriate guilt. And he was believing a lie that he was responsible for the outcome. He wasn't responsible for the outcome. He was responsible for his conduct in parenting. And I think he was very vigilant. How many parents would go three times in one day? Most of us got the antibiotics would at least wait 24 hours, wouldn't we? Yeah. So he did a really good job, but the outcome wasn't very good. And he allowed the feelings of grief to, repl- uh, to be experienced as guilt. Why? I'll just tell you real quick. When you experience grief, and imagine losing a child, if you could imagine that, this is something you would not want to accept. You would want to fix it. You would want to turn the clock back. You would want to undo it, wouldn't you? But you know you can't really undo anything with the child, so our mind tries to find something we did wrong. And if we can find something we did wrong and we can fix it, well, well, then if we do it right, then we can kind of, see, turn the clock back and undo it. So the mind unconsciously is looking for some problem that we did wrong that we can now fix and make it all right. It's a way of subtle self-deception and thus results in inappropriate guilt. So problem with false beliefs results in inappropriate guilt. Believing a, pl- a lie responds for outcomes. Um, Victims of abuse often struggle with this. They have many false beliefs, such as they are worthless, they are ugly, they are nasty, they are not good enough. They believe all these bad things about themselves, and thus they have all these these, uh, insecurities, relationship problems, and so forth. Um, I use an analogy. I say, imagine a filing cabinet. When you open a filing cabinet, in that filing cabinet, each specific event that you have uh, is filed away in one of those files. Now, we can't go back in time and change history. If you were abused on your sixth birthday by your dad, we can't undo that. That's a fact. But we can ask the question, where, what file did you put that in when that happened, when you were six? And what file they put it in? Well, I'm gross. I'm nasty. I'm worthless. I'm no good. Imagine out in the parking lot when you leave here, you see a 40-year-old man cursing at a five-year-old little girl, calling her every foul word you've ever heard, screaming his face red to this five-year-old little girl. Do you look over at that situation and go, What a horrible five-year-old little girl. 
No. You may be calling her all these bad names, but you immediately recognize the person with the problem is the man. What does the little girl walk away feeling like? Yes, you see the problem now. She is internalizing this experience, filing it in the wrong place. And thus, children who are abused grow up with many painful experiences filed in their hearts in the wrong place. Okay, because the situation feels gross and ugly, they attach it to the self. And so, um, I use an analogy of, um, of the cow pasture. I, uh, anybody ever walk in a cow pasture? Anybody? You all know what cow pastures are? Okay. You know what a cow pie is? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Well, imagine walking in a cow pasture and you slip and fall in a fairly recent cow pie. Would that be a gross experience? A disgusting experience? Sure it would. Does that make you a gross and disgusting person? Oh, so you can have gross and disgusting things happen to you without you becoming a gross and disgusting person? And so kids who are abused don't make that distinction. They're, they're too young. They can't figure that out. And so they grow up with this sense, this filing away of these gross and disgusting experiences that felt gross. Well, because it was gross. It was disgusting. But you never were. You see? And so we have to help them open those files. We have to help them realize what the truth is. You'll know the truth. The truth sets you free. And refile the experience where it belongs. I wasn't gross. The experience was. I wasn't the one with the problem. The person who abusing me was. Problem with obeying the commandments with an imbalanced mind. I'll tell you uh, the story of a young lady who was struggling with guilt from an affair. She was married. She had a one-time, one-night stand. Happened seven years ago. And for seven years, she was struggling with chronic, unremitting guilt, confessing and repenting, confessing and repenting, confessing and repenting, and never getting over the guilt. Going to the altar, been rebaptized. She confessed it to her husband. He forgave her. They were reconciled and over it. But the guilt never went away. Why? Well, when somebody makes a decision to have an affair, do they do that because their reason and conscience evaluate the facts, the evidence, and circumstances, and come to a healthy conclusion, this is a good thing to do, and move forward with the affair? No. They make it because their feelings become powerful in the moment and overrule their judgment. Isn't that how it works? Yes. Okay, so the reason this young lady who never didn't have any more affairs kept experiencing guilt for the affair is because she never balanced her mind in the right way. She allowed her feelings to continue to overrule. So she'd be in places like she'd be at her office and a coworker will ask her, can I borrow your car? Her judgment says, wait a minute, you, you just got your license suspended uh, for drunk driving. Uh, no, uh, I, I don't think it's good that you drive my car. But her feelings come up and go, but, but I don't want you to be mad at me. I don't like conflict. I, 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 and she would let her borrow the car. Now, where in the Bible is it written, thou shalt not let a coworker borrow your car? It's not. And so she would let this happen, and her mind, her judgment would convict her of this guilt feeling because she's wrong, Right? But she, can't, she doesn't have a specific to identify why she's wrong. And so her mind dredges up the most egregious example of the same type of behavior, which was the affair. And so every time she was allowing her mind to work in this way, she experienced guilt for the affair. And what she needed to do was learn how to balance her mind and begin implementing what her judgment says is appropriate rather than letting feelings overrule her judgment. And we really are almost done. Okay, so the Christian principles... You will know the truth. The truth sets you free. James, the first chapter, says no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil feelings. Feelings lead to temptation. Truth sets free. And so feelings enter through that 
that genetic vulnerability, uh, God is working on the higher faculties to enlighten our minds with, with uh, truth. And then seven changes to balance the mind. Number one, think for yourself. Reason for yourself. The Bible text, come let us reason together. John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, rather I call you friends because servants don't understand their master's business. Romans 4, 15, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Hebrews 5, 14, uh, the mature Christian are those who have learned by practice how to discern the right from the wrong. Reason, weigh things out, draw conclusions, look for the evidence, learn to think for yourself. Establish trust in God based on the evidence. I mean, why do you think Christ came? but to give you the evidence to win you back to trust. I mean, he came to reveal the truth. One of his primary missions, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay? And we will deal with this a whole lot more this weekend. Uh, from, form beliefs based on evidence, truth, and fact. These aren't just beliefs in God. These are beliefs in whether the spouse, this person that you're dating is trustworthy. Form that, that belief on whether they're trustworthy based on the evidence of their trustworthiness, not on how they make you feel on the date. Okay? Form all your beliefs based on evidence, truth, and facts. Evaluate feelings in light of evidence. So we, we're not people who want to ignore feelings. We don't want people to say, hey, hey, you know, feelings are at the bottom, so let's just pretend we don't have them. Let's not deal with them. No. Feelings are to be evaluated, elevated to our reason and judgment, and work through, process through, understand where they're coming from and why. But our decision-making is not based on the feeling. It's based on the, the reasonable course of action on evidence and truth. And then control the imagination. Control the imagination, as we already gave examples of that. Establish healthy religious practices. And we're going to have some fun with that one tomorrow morning. And then choose to do what is right, healthy, and reasonable because it is right, healthy, and reasonable. Not because it feels good in the moment. If you had to go to physical therapy for a broken leg and you told the physical therapist, I'll be glad to get up there and do those exercises as soon as it doesn't hurt anymore. (laughs) Would you ever walk? No. And emotionally speaking, relationally speaking, many people know the course they need to take, but they won't take it because it requires them to go through some pain in the process. And so they stay in their, in their emotional wheelchair, cripple, emotional cripples, never really growing up, never really standing on their own two feet because they won't make the choice to go through that process because there's some pain involved, even though they know they need to. I see it all the time, and I'm sure you can think about people in your own life and your own circle that struggle with this. So choose to do what's right because it is right, healthy, and reasonable.